0: Exodus chapter 15 verses 22 through 26. Exodus chapter 15 verses 22 through 26. Today's sermon is the second in a six-week series titled Yahweh. Yahweh, we've learned last week, is God's proper name, his personal name. It's not like a, a title like Savior or Master. And in the Bible, we see it uh, shows up as many as 6,000 times in scripture. And when you see it in the Bible, it'll be translated uh, as Lord, either in all caps or small caps. So you can look out for it. And as the Bible unfolds, we see that this name is often joined to other words in order to highlight uh, an aspect of God's character and commemorate important events in God's salvation story. And today we're going to bump up against another one of these names. Exodus 15, 22 through 26. Scripture says Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians." For I am the Lord, your healer. Well, you and I will rarely feel more deeply as human beings than when we get the news that we or someone we love is bumping up against death, has contracted a deadly virus or a disease. I have two memories that are especially acute to me first is when I got a call that my father was in ICU on life support and that I needed to come home now. I was in college. My mom's voice was troubled but calm. She was good at speaking in a calm way to her children uh, with bad news. That was a way of hers. In 25 years, dad had never taken a sick day. He took one the day before, and on this day, he was in the ICU. He had contracted a septic bacterial infection that took him down in a day and had him on more medication at one time than the doctors at that hospital had ever given to a person. There were bags everywhere, and it was horrifying. My brother and I literally wailed as we sat on the curb together that night, the first night we were together with our dad, which we thought might be our last. And since he was unconscious, it would mean we would not have a chance to speak with him. But God was kind, and my dad is still alive. The reason my mother was so good at handling that call was because of how accustomed she had grown to handling family members with bad news about my brother, Tyler. You see, in 1977, a young couple, John and Janelle Hunter, my mom and dad, Uh, got a boy, baby boy, they named him Tyler. Dad liked the name because it sounded like a cowboy name. Tyler was going to be the first of what would be three boys, Tyler, Trent, and Drew. I don't know if you can hear it. That's a cowboy ring. Tyler was born blue and with a serious heart condition that required open-heart surgeries and a brain defect which required brain surgery in the first year and a half of his life. My dad worked hard and my mom lived at the hospital two hours away. And while my mom never left Tyler's side, one evening she did go to dinner with two nurses. And when she came back, she walked in the room and has this this clear memory. This is her story. She walked in the room and there Tyler was. And the doctor was drawing fluid off of Tyler's brain in order to take a culture to better understand a change in his behavior and a fever that they didn't understand. And as he extracted the fluid... Uh, my mom says it's as though the life left Tyler's face. He went into seizures and he was never the same. My mom will never forget what the doctor said when he drew the fluid. I don't know what I did. Uh, I don't know what I did. Made, I know what I did made Tyler worse, but I don't know why. A day later, the doctors found out that Tyler had a staph infection in the brain, a form of meningitis. The hospital had an epidemic of this bacteria and Tyler had been put on the wrong antibiotics. Tyler's doctors were unaware of the epidemic and drawing fluid off his brain inflamed the infection that had already destroyed much of his brain. And this required nine more brain surgeries to clear out the debris from the infection. And he was mentally and physically normal until that night. And today my brother is mentally and severely mentally and physically handicapped, we call him our baby. Uh, he's like a two-month-old. He's my older brother. For better or worse, uh, in our family, uh, I bear the resemblance of uh, the older brother, but I'm always proud to say that I'm a middle child. Several times over the years, I've received calls since I left home. Received calls to get to Chicago because Tyler was in the hospital. It's pneumonia, or or he's in the hospital for some reason, and it. it uh, uh, it may not be good, but but God was gracious and my brother Tyler is still alive. And these are two of my stories and you have your own and you and I will each have more. The only thing worse than being sick ourselves is when someone we love is sick and that's we are, why we are so willing to take the place of someone we love in these kinds of circumstances, perhaps especially a parent for a child. And I must confess that, While I grew up with Tyler, I did not know Tyler uh, when he was normal, before he was handicapped, but now as a young father, it's very difficult to imagine what my parents went through and what some of you have gone through and will. Life is precious, and that's why our encounters with disease and with death draw out some of the deepest feelings we ever feel. Well, to our text this morning... If all you did was read Genesis 1 and 2 and then Exodus 15, you should notice that some things have changed. You should. In the first chapters of the Bible, God makes humankind and he puts them in paradise. And my friends, we are not in paradise anymore. In Exodus 15, we find a nation, Israel, trekking through no small patch of wilderness. They were traveling for three days and they were thirsty. The water they do find makes them sick. And not only that, but God is talking about things like diseases. There was no dry ground in Eden. There was no thirst in Eden. There were no aches or pains, let alone diseases in Eden. So they are not in paradise anymore. Things have changed. And this is life outside of Eden. And this is where we live too. And like these tired travelers, we live in a world with physical exhaustion, sick water and disease. And like these tired travelers, our problems in this place and in these bodies can be a cause for disillusionment with God. You can imagine some of their questions, tired, thirsty and exhausted. He parted the Red Sea, can he give us something to drink? And if he can, why doesn't he? Was he too tired himself after lifting all that heavy water? Maybe he doesn't care. Or, or maybe he does care, but there's only so much that he can do. Or maybe he just doesn't know he's off doing something else onto the next thing. Or maybe in our physical suffering, we aren't troubled with this specific question. Maybe we're crushed under the weight of a feeling of guilt, as though God has got us. And maybe we're just confused, heartbroken, sad, and we don't know what to think. That is often the case. Well, whatever the case may be, physical suffering is one place where the rubber of life meets the road of our theology. That is where the rubber of, the rubber of life meets the road of our view of God. And the experience of problems in our bodies can be a cause for discouragement, dis- depression, despair or disillusionment with God, but problems in our bodies are intended to lead us to a greater knowledge, a greater trust, and a greater worship of God. In Exodus 15, God has told us that he is a healer, not a partial healer or a late healer, but a healer. I am the Lord, your healer, he says. In Hebrew, Yahweh, Refecha. And this is a sermon about healing, but as with every sermon, about anything in the Bible, it is mainly a sermon about God, about knowing him, trusting him, and worshiping him as the Lord, our healer. And to this end, in the rest of our time, we will try to understand what God meant when he said, I am the Lord, your healer. And we'll do it with five questions. What does the Lord heal? How does the Lord heal? When does the Lord heal? Who does the Lord heal? And why? Does the Lord Heal? And if you like memorizing outlines but have traditionally struggled to do so, today you are allowed to feel absolutely amazing. Because this is not a hard outline to remember, but it seemed like the best way to get such serious and sensitive and important material clear from Scripture off the page today. And to truly unpack the mind of God when he said, I am the Lord, your healer, we will have to fly at a higher altitude than Exodus 15. We'll have to fly at a higher altitude than the book of Exodus to understand the mind of God when he says this. And so we'll start here in Exodus, but we'll creep our way along the scriptures to watch the flower of this name of God unfold before us. And as we do, it's been my earnest prayer, and it is my earnest prayer and hope that our gracious Lord would use this time in His Word to comfort troubled hearts this morning. There are many. To prepare you for a troubled heart, to clear troubled minds, and to concentrate our full attention on His glory as the Lord who heals. So, first question What does the Lord heal? What does the Lord heal? Well, the first way to answer this question is to consider its meaning to the original hearers in Exodus 15, on the ground, in the story itself. Let's imagine what these people must have been feeling in their bodies. They were thirsty. We know what thirst is. When I came in from mowing the lawn as a boy, I could drink three tall glasses of milk like my dad. You and I know what thirst is, but it's doubtful that anyone in this room knows this kind of thirst. Three days, no water walking under the sun. Naturally, they were also exhausted and at many levels. Just think of the level of being a family. If going to Target in the post office with three kids is exhausting for my wife, and maybe more exhausting for her when I come, uh, this hike would have been blistering for these families. Youngsters in tow, erratic naps, missed mealtimes, if any. And that's just one dimension of the trek. And then after three days, they see water. And it's actually not an illusion. I can imagine some of the men running ahead to test the water, but it was bitter. And bitter doesn't mean it wasn't good to taste, although it probably wasn't good to the taste. Bitter means that it wasn't good for the body. And if these people, as thirsty as they were, who traditionally lived off the ground, would not drink this water, then this was bad water. And finding this kind of water was bad news. Better it had been an illusion. So Moses cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh, the same Lord that introduced himself to Moses in the burning bush and promised to be with him, the same Lord who kept his promise and divided the Red Sea only three days prior, delivering this whole group from their Egyptian oppressors. And at Yahweh's command, Moses lobs a log into the water and the water is healed. It goes from bitter to sweet. And you can just imagine the sight at the moment. Someone checks the water, it's good, amazing. And the rush to the, to the banks, the laughing, the splashing, the drinking, the crying maybe for hours, the smiles. And it is at this time that the Lord said to them, I am the Lord, your healer. Their bodies needed water and the Lord provided water. So the Lord healed his people when he provided for their physical needs, showing his healing lordship. But his healing lordship was also seen through his promise to protect them from disease. Verse 25, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. God is saying, stick with me and you will be safe. Trust me and you will live. He would never send his people back into slavery, but he would put the diseases on them that he had put on the Egyptians if they live like the Egyptians. There is more to say about this passage, but one big takeaway here is that God of Israel is the Lord of disease. He is the Lord of their needs and he is the Lord of disease. But still for all that God has done in pulling off the greatest, what must have been the greatest escape of all time, why three days without water? Doesn't this seem a little inconsistent with God's abilities and with his professed love and intentions for this people? Surely God could meet their needs utterly and completely with water in abundance, and surely he could just do away with disease forever. If we fast forward the story a bit, quite a bit, in Israel's history, we find ourselves under the preaching of the prophet Isaiah, who gives us probably one of our best pictures of God's future plans from the Old Testament for a future age. Isaiah 35, 1 through 7, Isaiah says... The wilderness and the dry ground shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool And the thirsty ground springs of water. Now that's what I'm talking about, right? This is what we would look forward to after the Red Sea. There's plenty more when that came from, where that came from. In fact, these kinds of premises are riddled all throughout the Old Testament prophets, all over the place. Here's Ezekiel's vision of a river in this future age outside the temple of God. Ezekiel 47, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. In other words, there is the expectation of a future day in which just as God delivered his people from Egyptian slavery, he would deliver them from everything bad and sad and wrong in this world. And Isaiah sums it up in 22 words in Isaiah 65:17 when he says, for behold, or the Lord says, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. In Exodus 15, God said to Israel, I am the Lord your healer. And through the prophets, God reveals his plans as a healer. The Lord heals. But how? That, ha- that has to be the next question. How? How does the Lord heal? Those are some big promises in Isaiah. But how will God bring it about? Well, one answer might simply be that he is God. And that's true. But that's also part of the problem. At the start of the sermon, we noticed that some things had changed since Eden. Uh, The ground had changed, our bodies had changed, but there was one thing that had changed that we didn't mention. You notice the grumbling at Moses and at the Lord? We had changed. We had changed and we had turned from God and this is the change that is the explanation for all of the other changes that that have taken place. The scripture says that when God placed Adam in paradise, he gave him everything to enjoy but one tree and that eating from that tree would mean death and he chose to eat and God issued a curse on creation including death and everything in between and he was good to do this and he was right to do this and he was just and that's why we're here in the desert. Today, and not in paradise. That's why we die. That's why children die young. That's where meningitis came from. That's where cancer came from. Where septic bacterial infection came from. Seizures, migraine, migraines, autoimmune disease. It all goes back to the curse. And as all these are consequences of sin, all of these are yet mere shadows and symbols of our true problem of guilt before God and sin in the heart. Israel was grumbling 72 hours after God split the sea and sent them through, led them through. 72 hours. And that's because of a disease in the heart of humankind. All of us in the race of Adam, our wheels bent against God. And this is the explanation for the origin of physical suffering, the fall. The naturalist says that our physical ailments are normal. It's the course of things. The Hindu says that suffering is a matter of karma. We get specifically what we specifically deserve. And the Buddhist says that it's an illusion. But in the Bible, our physical troubles are ultimately bound up with our spiritual troubles as those who are born in the race of Adam. And that's why the psalmist who penned Psalm 103 prayed this way, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases. And that's why Isaiah writes of the future age, and no inhabitant will say, I am sick, The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. We need whole healing for a whole problem because our problem runs much deeper than skin and bones. So, granted that that is our problem, and given our problem, how does God heal? How does He heal? If the problems with this world go back to our spiritual offense against God, then it stands to reason that the problems in this world will be resolved only when our spiritual offense against God is resolved. And that is exactly the case. Even though there's certainly nothing you and I can do about it, our past is full of sin that condemns us. We can't do anything about our past sin. But even if we could wipe the slate clean, we continue to sin because we're sinners. We're cut from Adam's cloth. So how does the Lord heal? How will he bring about the realization of these great promises for a people who are sinners like us, condemned? Well, Isaiah 53, about 20 chapters after the verses we read previously, gives us our answer. When Isaiah writes about the one he calls a servant, a Messiah, and these should be familiar words. Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. How does the Lord heal? This is how the Lord heals. This is how the Lord heals. In Exodus 15, God promised diseases for disobedience to his voice, and there's plenty more of that in God's instruction to Israel, who was is is to be holy as God was holy. It says there in Exodus 15 that God established a statute and a rule for them, and that's an echo from the future of Sinai when he'll lay down his law, blessings and cursings for disobedience, uh, the, 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 the curse of disease in many cases. But what we learn from that part of the Bible, Israel's story, is that this is no way of salvation. That is obedience, because we can't obey. And that's why Israel got plenty of diseases. The sufferer of Isaiah 53 is the way of salvation. He will bear our griefs, he will carry our sorrows, he will be crushed for our iniquities, it says. And by his wounds we will be healed. In our place, he will stand taking what is ours and what we deserve and giving us what is his and what he deserves. And this is total healing. You can't miss this. Griefs, sorrows, iniquities, wounds. My friends, the stats for the the medication of America, the amount of medication that Americans take is simply astonishing And the depression rates and the suicide rates in areas that are wealthy, healthy, and educated is alarming. God promises to heal it all and to do it personally. And in the Gospels, we see where it begins. In the Gospels, we see where this begins. When John the Baptist introduced Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But that kind of talk, by the way, eventually landed John in prison. Right, and In Luke 7, from prison, John is apparently doubting Jesus' identity, so he sends two of his own disciples to Jesus to ask him if he's the one he's supposed to be looking for or if there's someone else. Are you the one we should be looking for or is there someone else? And Jesus replied, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them familiar words it's code language this is what Jesus is doing and it's a signal that he's bringing this and everything else that is promised that we read in the book of Isaiah the scripture tells us that Jesus healed people from compassion but Jesus was clearly doing more than fixing bodies from goodwill When a layman was dropped down to Jesus through the roof in a crowded setting, a crowded home where he could not otherwise get in, the text says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and Pharisees, the text goes on to describe, began questioning, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on, and he went home, glorifying God. The point is impossible to miss. In Exodus 15, God said to Israel, I am the Lord, your healer. And he promised lavish healing through the prophets and through Isaiah. And Jesus here is Yahweh, the healer, come to his people. He has come to heal our diseases, to forgive sins, and to bring about a new creation. But when we think about John's doubting in the prison, there is an important question That is raised. Why did he doubt? I'd suggest that John doubted in prison because he was confused about the Lord's timing. The Lord's timing. Which brings us to our third question When does the Lord heal? When does the Lord heal? Where was the doubt coming from? John the Baptist's question springs from doubt in his heart over the identity of Jesus because of the Lord's timing. You'll know that John had a lot invested in Jesus already. He preached about him and he was in prison on Jesus' account. But as John languished in prison, he became increasingly perplexed about Jesus. His circumstances did not seem to match what he believed about God and God's plans to save. In the first place, John was in prison. What was he doing there if the Messiah had come? Could not Jesus help? And related, what about everything else God promised to do, like judge his enemies? That too is part of Isaiah's promises that we didn't read this morning, but are there in full. The subject of the Lord's timing was a reason for John's, uh, John's doubt about the identity of Jesus, and maybe that he had gotten it wrong. And it can also be a reason for our doubt as well, even though it may be for different reasons and different expectations. John doubted and we doubt. But for John, he asked Jesus, and Jesus' answer settled the matter. It settled the matter. John did not know the purpose for his imprisonment, but he trusted Jesus. Now, sometimes we know the, the, know the reason for our suffering. The nature of our suffering makes it clear. Drunkenness, pride, and foolishness are great explanations for all kinds of suffering in our lives, and we should be able to make the connection When it's a direct consequence of our sin Sometimes it's the specific discipline of the Lord James 5 says That we should confess our sins to one another And pray for one another That we may be healed But much of the time it's quite mysterious to us It was to John In the end the purpose of his suffering In prison Which ended in his beheading was to signal to the disciples what kind of death Jesus would die and what kind of death they were called to. Mark situates the story of John's beheading exactly in his gospel in order to make that point. Not that Jesus would beheaded, be beheaded or every disciple would be beheaded, but that they would die suffering for the sake of the name. And it was mysterious to the Israelites. Three days without water? Why? The text says that the Lord was testing them. He had his purposes. And it was mysterious for Job. All of Job's suffering was inflicted on him by Satan. Personally, we know from scripture. And yet God's purpose was to prove the genuineness of Job's faith. Satan was on a leash. Job did not know God's purposes, but he stayed faithful. And he blessed the Lord who gives and takes away, even without explanation. And Paul had a thorn in his flesh. He called it a messenger from Satan. And yet it was an instrument of God to keep him humble. That's why God allowed it. Paul begged the Lord to take it away, knowing that the Lord could and the Lord could take it away. But Paul could still say, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For as the Lord Jesus said to Paul, His power is perfected in Paul's weakness. And this is the purpose of God's leaving the thorn in him and not answering Paul's prayers. Then there is the famous question from Jesus' disciples in John 9. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? A boy was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Until that day, I'm hoping he was listening in on that, he wouldn't have known what his blindness was for. I'm sure that was a great encouragement to his parents. We don't always know God's purposes in our suffering, but we can know that his purposes are perfect. And we can know that whatever he is doing, he is and always is the Lord, our healer for those who are in Christ. John was disillusioned about Jesus' identity, but he got his answer from Jesus, and though he didn't know that God's purpose in his imprisonment, the matter was settled for John. And not only do we have our answer from Jesus, but we have the whole story of the Bible. We have the end of the story, where we find true and total healing, and true and total healing in God's true and perfect time. And it's the end of the story that made all the difference for the Apostle Paul, who thought deeply about these things when he wrote, as did the other apostles. We recently completed a series through 1 Peter. Plenty of this forward-looking hope that conditions everything about how we experience life now. Paul likewise thought deeply about sin and the future and his suffering when he wrote in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility remember the curse for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not and not only the creation but we ourselves even our bodies groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies notice the connection of our groaning and the creation's groaning to that time when the sons of God he said will be revealed when God completes his saving plan notice the images groaning and birth pains this is the way to describe this present age groanings birth pains pain is a part of this age it's an integral part And Paul had plenty of it, but even in this place and in this body, Paul could say only verses later, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor... Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Name one thing that isn't included under the umbrella of that verse. Christ's love is greater than anything we can lose and we can never lose Christ's love. And at times, although the completion of God's healing promises is yet future, we do get a peek into what's to come. We do get a taste for what we might feel on that day. Every now and then then, uh, YouTube video will make you cry. Uh, It does does for me. Just get careful if you're watching it with coworkers or something. Um, I have a memory in this last year of watching a video of a girl who was deaf. She never heard anything. And, and I, don't, I don't know how the technology worked, but she's sitting there in, in her office with her doctor and um, she'd put some headphones on her and she heard for the first time. And she put her head in her hands and she just weeped. It was very sweet. One of the, one of the gifts of technology, one of the neatest videos you can watch on YouTube to take you into a moment like that. You watch a person who's deaf able to hear for the first time in Guatemala we were at a medical clinic in a village and a, a boy and his dad uh, came to the medical clinic and this boy was uh, very deformed when he walked he walked his legs were if you imagine his feet his legs were like this all curled up he could walk maybe 12 paces by himself otherwise his dad held his hand and he was able to kind of stay up and uh, apparently he was um Unable to, unable to walk when he was born, for sure. I mean, he had difficulty when he was born, but unable to walk by the time he was six and dad had been working with him so that he could take some steps and he could walk with some help. The dad hadn't even come to the medical clinic for help for his son. That was something that he had given up on. No one had had answers for his son. He was there to, for dental help, maybe to have a tooth pulled and to have a, his son's teeth cleaned had a chance to talk with him. This is probably this is actually the only person that I remember that came to a clinic that spoke English. So it was either Spanish or Achi down there uh, this last spring when I was able to go to Guatemala. And uh, so I was all over it. It was an opportunity to share the gospel, to get to know a guy, connect with him. Uh, otherwise, I was able to do things on this trip, but not speak to people who I didn't share a language with. But this man, I was able to. Had a good conversation. Well, um, we scheduled an appointment for the next day with him to meet with his son at a different location, one of the physical therapists that was on our trip, Becky king and that morning at eight o 'clock, uh, we met on the side of the road with traffic and uh, bikes wheel, wheel, uh, wheeling by. man got out of the car he had his son and his whole family, so Grandma and grandpa, probably aunts and uncles just half a dozen people or more there watching this. And Becky was on the curb with him. We'd gotten a walker out, uh, feeling his legs, trying to diagnose the issue: was it bone or was it muscular? This man, the day before, had told me that previously he had spent a two took a two year trip. I don't know how he got there to the United States to work to earn money for what he was told by somebody would be a twenty thousand dollar surgery to fix his son. This man's life was in his son, and in his son's good. And here on the side of the road. Uh, Becky was feeling his legs and she looks it up up at him after two minutes and says this is muscular I'm going to teach you several stretches you'll need to do them with your son several times a day your son will walk and uh, I lost it uh, can you imagine watching uh, a father who had given all that with such love for his son to hear those words and um uh, The family was, uh, react emotionally differently, but the whole family was there. They heard it and they just stared. You wonder what they were feeling inside must have been shock. As we gave him a walker, he'd never had a walker, 12 years old, and he was able to hold himself up. It's a beautiful scene. When I got back from Guatemala, the first thing Memo Ochoa, who's been on one of these trips, asked me was, uh, hey, did you cry? I said, yeah, I did. I knew exactly what he was talking about. You bump into these kind of moments. I'll never forget it. Well, folks, this is nothing. This is nothing. Can you imagine Jesus going from village to village? No wonder the riots around Jesus. When a young boy that Jesus heals opens his eyes and sees the blue sky in the face of his mom, when a man's ears are unstopped so that he can hear the voice of his wife, when a leper is cleansed, When a lame man who can't walk, walks, and we're not talking walker, we're talking, I don't know how it happened, but new legs, legs that work, eyes that see, miracles. But even this, my friends, does not even compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. When Jesus, what Jesus did, we should think of as merely appetizers for what will come in the new creation, when the blind will really see and see the face of Christ, when the deaf will really hear and hear the voice of Christ, when the lame will really walk and not only walk, but leap in praise to Christ, and when the mute will not only talk, but sing in praise to Christ. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Paul says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are in Adam, but we shall bear the image of Christ. So your hurt back, your bad memory, your anxiety, your griefs, your sins, You should seek relief from all of these. But in the new creation, just as God promised, they're gone. Gone. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us in these new bodies in the perfect worship and vision of Christ. So whether we are on a hospital bed or beside one, the difference between despair or disillusionment and hope will be our heart's fixation on the glory that is to come. This is the difference in the New Testament for Paul. When he writes what he does, he writes from a perspective on life that sees God's promises as surely fulfilled and fulfilled in the future. And I hope you're looking forward to them. But whom does the Lord heal? That surely must be the next logical question. Surely there must be people in this room, even many, who feel hopeless in the face of disease and in the face of death, who are not sure what's to come. And that's why we need to ask this question Whom does the Lord heal? We should want to know if we're going to be a part of this or not, and we should want to know how we can be a part of this. Christ brings whole healing. How can we know whole healing? The Lord said to Israel, I am the Lord, your healer. Is he your healer? Is he my healer? In Romans 8, Paul says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Am I called according to his purpose? Well, the first thing we must say is that God is out to heal every part of us, and not only part of us, and being healed at any part requires that we come to Him for healing in whole. Jesus rebuked the crowd after feeding 5,000, because as he said, "You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves." He can actually see into the hearts of the people in this crowd following him around, that they actually wanted more bread. Isn't that amazing? That's sin. Here's the Lord Jesus speaking and teaching and they don't want what he has to say or even him. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You've got to eat me and they peel off and the crowd is thinned. And for that reason, neither should we go to Jesus merely for a physical tune-up. He fed the people loaves, but they said, he said, I am the bread of life. This does not mean that we should not cry out from our foxholes, but it does mean that when we cry out from our foxholes, if all we want is rescue from that foxhole, then that is not the kind of healing that God is interested in providing, although He may deliver you from the foxhole. And it is not the kind of healing that God actually provides ultimately. Thankfully, thankfully, the Bible is clear in general and the Bible is profoundly and perfectly clear on the most profound and important things. It is clear on the question of whom does the Lord heal. Remember the story of the lame man lowered through the roof of the home, the crowded home? Text says, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And this is the constant refrain in the gospels when you see healing It's tied to faith. Believe. The reason that that faith is all that is required is that it is all that we contribute. Spiritually speaking, we come to God as sinners with blind eyes, deaf ears, lame legs, and mute mouths. Faith is the acknowledgement that this is all we have. Faith is the acknowledgement that Jesus gives sight, hearing, life to our spiritual legs, and voice to our spiritual throat. Faith is going to Christ as the great physician for help with everything and first the forgiveness of sins. This is what it means when we say believe in Jesus. And if you are here this morning and have not done that, you must believe in Jesus. I urge you. In Luke 5.31, only verses later from the story we read, we see that those who... Uh, Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He's speaking in spiritual terms. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who is he talking to? Pharisees who were pitching a fit that he's spending all this time with sinners. As though the Pharisees aren't sinners. Oh, their sin is much greater because they can't see their sin. They're self-righteous. Jesus came as a great physician for the sick, those who know they're sick. So I hope you know you're sick this morning. And I plead with you to come to Christ, the great physician who can heal you, forgive your sins, who bears your griefs on the cross when he dies. He is the one that Isaiah promised, who would bear our griefs, who is stricken for us, through through whose chastisement brings us peace and by whose wounds we are healed. Come to him. Every physical ailment you or a loved one has ever known is but a mere shadow and a symbol of our real problem of sin. And as scripture unfolds, the healing of our bodies requires nothing less than the cross of Christ. A number of years ago, I had the chance uh, sort of last minute to visit with a relative. We were in the area and learned that they were in the hospital. Um, We were hoping to visit with her, with a a lot of family that was going to be uh, at a home, an event. But in this case, she was in the hospital and um, I had a little amount of time from finding that out to visiting with her to think about how to spend that time. And I only see her every many years. I called a friend and I asked asked him a question. I said, hey, yeah, buddy, what what are the the really good Psalms for comforting somebody in the hospital? Um, And those are good to know, by the way. Psalm 46 is one of them. But his first question to me uh, put me to shame. He said, well, is she a Christian? And I said, I don't think so he said, Trent, there is no comfort in the scriptures for anyone who doesn't know the Lord. And I I stood corrected. And so we talked about Christ when we visited with her. And we had a chance to visit with her the next day for several hours. And we talked about Christ. And it was great. On our water trips to Guatemala, they must always be a means to inviting people to the well that springs up to eternal life. This is the priority. Our medical trips must always be an invitation to an appointment with the great physician. There are plenty of hopeless people with perfectly clean water, a perfectly clean bill of health, and a perfect set of teeth. Without hope and without God in the world, we need the gospel, it's what we have. Every physical ailment you or a loved one has ever known is but a mere shadow and symbol of our real problem of guilt and sin. And every physical healing we experience by whatever means is a mere shadow of God's real solution to salvation through Christ. And this is the good news that we believe, and it is the good news that we are on mission with to preach. So, one final question Why does God heal? Why does God heal? We have a promise that he does, but as we lay on our hospital beds, I suspect we can feel a sense of guilt for sin, a heaviness with the life we've lived, regret. God would have us if we are in Christ to look forward with hope and confidence. But we lay on those hospital beds differently than we lay on our beds at home. Why would God save a sinner like me? There's nothing in me to, worth saving, of course, and that's why the ultimate ground of our hope is God's resolve to be worshiped. His resolve to be worshiped. When He heals us, we are a trophy to His healing grace for Him to display for all eternity. His purpose is for His glory and for His worship. Our sermon began in the garden, in creation, and it's going to end on the last page as we see this point being made in a beautiful and in a vivid way in the book of Revelation, chapter 22. John's heavenly vision of the new creation we've been talking about. These should be familiar words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. And with that, our sermon must end with the last words of the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, without your word, we might think that our aches and our pains in our bodies are our biggest problem. And that's not because we wouldn't have other aches and pains and hurts or knowledge of sin, but because of our blindness and our refusal to admit it is what it is. But Father, because of your word and your spirit this morning, we say to you, we are great sinners. And we confess that our greatest need has nothing to do with our physical body, but has to do with our very soul as we are sinners in need of forgiveness, condemned before you. Father, we pray for you to open eyes this morning, to see the glory of Christ, to see our great need as those who bring blindness and deafness and lameness and muteness to the table and your great healing, mercy, and kindness to provide all that we need for a total healing through the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our griefs, who carries our sorrows, who is crushed for our iniquities, and who is wounded that we might be healed. Father, we look forward to this healing. Help us to live as Paul did in light of a vision of your great healing mercy to be complete in the new creation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.